Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I will take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. This week, we'll update you on Pope Francis's trip to Morocco and his new document on young people. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. All right, good morning from New York, Jerry. Good morning from Rome with gray skies and threatening rain. Really? This might be yes, might yes. be a first for Inside the Vatican. Well, when we went to um, Morocco last week, it rained when we arrived, and the locals there considered it a blessing. Jerry, I wanted to ask you, uh, when you were on the plane, you got a birthday cake from Pope Francis. Oh, yeah, he first, in the uh, when we were going out, he came and wished happy birthday. In English. Mm-hmm. And then on your way back, you got a cake, right? On the way back at the end of the press conference, he surprised us and with this cake. I was way back at the back of the plane, so I had to go up, and here was the Pope holding a cake. It was quite something. <laughs> up first, in between Pope Francis wishing Jerry a happy birthday and giving him a birthday cake, he visited Morocco. And the big news out of this trip was that the Pope and King Mohammed VI of Morocco signed a joint appeal for the city of Jerusalem to remain open to all faiths. It was unexpected. Nobody had got any inkling that such a thing was going to happen. But it reflects a very, as the Pope said on the plane, a deep feeling, uh, suffering among believers. He, he presented as not just the head of the, the King of Morocco and the head of the Vatican State, but as believers. And he said believers are suffering from the present situation and he, they hoped, they expressed the wish, the desire, the appeal that Jerusalem be a city that is open to all believers, Christians, Muslims, as well as Jews. Jerry, is that something that's seriously under threat right now? Like, what are the, what are the threats to that? Well, we've seen, we see threats at several levels. First of all, within Israel itself, we've seen that there's a, a I'd call it, not just Orthodox, but ultra-Orthodox groups who want to have everything that is in Jerusalem Jewish. And they are engaged in excavations. In, in You can see it's happened. I, I've come visited the Holy City over many, many years, and I've seen the increasing uh, reduction of the uh, Arab sphere. I see the Christians are concerned over what's going to happen to their properties. Uh, and one thing is what the state is saying. One thing is what's happening on the ground and what's happening in the administration in Jerusalem. Uh, secondly, I mean, you've got to remember that there's been a lot of tension over the Muslims being able to access the Alaska Mosque and the Temple Mount. And it's not just that the Muslims have difficulty tensions in accessing their holy site. Uh, but also the Christians in Bethlehem, which is about 20-minute car ride from Jerusalem. There are many young Christian, Arab Christian men who cannot, have not been able to visit the holy shrine sites in Jerusalem. They can't pray at the, the Holy Sepulchre the, where the, the resurrection of Christ is or at Golgotha. Uh, and, and this is very sad. So I think it's very important for the future, for peace in the Holy Land, that the followers of the three monotheistic religions, 
Judaism, Christianity, and Islam can have access to their respective holy sites and that they are respected and that there is no uh, no effort to reduce or create problems for them in having uh, being able to worship at these sites. You can read more of Jerry's reporting from Morocco at americamagazine.org. And as always, I'll link to the stories that we've talked about in the show notes. This week, Pope Francis released his follow-up document to last fall's Synod on Young People. This new document is an apostolic exhortation, which is a kind of major church document that's addressed to a specific group. And it's the kind of document that Pope Francis usually writes to follow up on a synod. That's what he did with the exhortation on the family. This one is called in Latin, Christus vivit, or Christ is alive, and it's directed to young people. The first and the priority audience is the young people. The Pope is talking directly to the young people. Mm -hmm. It's very direct. It's Francis in his classic style of speaking to the person, Mm -hmm. not to a kind of a distant audience. It's a... So you get the feel when you're reading it that he's talking to you. Right, right. And the second audience, of course, is the what he called the entire people of God, the pastors, the, the, the bishops, the priests, the, the religious, the youth ministers, those who are working with young people to enable them to understand that you've got to engage young people. They have things to say. He says they're not the tomorrow of the church. They are the today of the church. This document is also long, like two to three hundred pages. We don't have a final page count because there hasn't been an official English PDF released yet, just a web version. So there's a lot in here to discuss. Jerry and I are going to focus our conversation around a couple of our biggest takeaways from the document. And then we'll talk about some of the criticism it's faced. Here's what Jerry took from the document. It picks up Practically all the issues that emerged during the Synod and some other ones that the Pope throws in. So he's taken what has been said at the Synod very seriously and also in the pre-Synod meeting in the previous March where he had 300 people from different countries meeting in Rome. So that's the first impact of the document on me. The second thing, it's, it's very positive. Francis says, to the church church leaders that the young people don't want a church that just engages in condemnation or prohibitions. And, and at a certain point, he quotes Archbishop Romero, uh, who says very clearly, you know, Christianity is Christ, a, a person. So, so not, not just doctrines and prohibitions and commands. It's Christ himself. And so Francis emphasizes the need to develop the personal friendship with Christ. I think that what comes out of the document is that the Pope's sensitivity to where and what, where, where young people are and what they're doing and what they're asking. And he, he sees that them taking action in different countries Yeah, he doesn't cite any concrete examples, but he does... No, he doesn't, but it struck me that in the light of... Remember, he signed this document on the 25th of March. Mm -hmm. And that was after all the young people in different countries came out on the streets protesting, demanding that their governments take action on climate change. Right, right, I remember. So uh, it would not surprise me if 
this was one of the things he has on mind. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things that was really striking to me, too, about the document was just how much, you know, he kind of insisted on calling on young people to make their voices heard and like make a ruckus, fight for the change they want to see. I, I found that encouraging. Well, it goes back to what he said to young people when he had this first great big meeting with them in Rio de Janeiro on was it July 2013 at the World Youth Day. And he told them, Hagen Leo, make a ruckus, uh, shake things up. There have been different uh, translations of this word, but really he's talking about don't just sit and let situation be as it is. If you see it needs change, then get involved and shake things up. That theme of change brings us to some of the criticisms that Pope Francis has faced about this document, which some people are saying calls for a lot of changes, but offers little in the way of concrete proposals, especially when it came to the section on women. So let's look at what this document says about women. There's actually a lot. The document says that the church should, quote, look back on history and acknowledge a fair share of male authoritarianism, domination, various forms of enslavement, abuse, and sexist violence. And with this outlook, the church can support the call to respect women's rights and offer convinced support for greater reciprocity between males and females, while not agreeing with everything some feminist groups propose. And that last part some reporters have read as a reference to women's ordination. This document also acknowledges that young women have expressed disappointment at a lack of female leading role models in the church. So that's what the document did say. But most of the criticism has centered on what it didn't say. The synod participants called strongly and urgently for the church to explore putting women in more decision-making positions in its highest levels. But the Pope's new document didn't engage with that request. When asked about it at a press conference this week, the cardinal presenting the document said that the Pope couldn't write about everything that the Synod had addressed, and he referred people to the Synod's own closing document. You know, I'm a little uneasy about people who, who just go looking for what he hasn't said instead of looking at what really he has said. I've seen people skim through the document to see, ah, has he said use this word or that word? Yeah, that, that totally happens. I think if everybody's conversation was analyzed in this way or things that they say, we can all pick holes in each other's statements, each other's documents. But I think what's more important is this. Only one other pope has written a, a letter to young people. That was John Paul II in 1985, right at the beginning of the World Youth Days, and it was a very short letter. This is a tome. It's a, it's, it's a Magna Carta. It's, it's a constitution for the involvement of young people, for the inspiration of young people in the church in the coming decades. One of the things that really struck me about this document is, is you know, besides the kind of hot-button issues that that people are reporting on it it is a very like spiritual document it really is kind of an extended meditation on jesus as a young person and and what that means for young people in the world and how the church should relate to them it's actually those spiritual insights that make up the vast majority of the document and while i was thinking about that this week especially as i found myself picking through the document to find the controversial parts to talk about on this podcast I realized that I was jumping over chapters and chapters of really valuable spiritual lessons. 
And that actually ties into an interesting exchange that the Pope had with one of the reporters on his plane ride back to Rome. I'll let Jerry tell you about it since he was there. Well, basically, the question was about the devil Mm. and how he's uh, highlighting often that the devil is behind a lot of the division, a lot of the uh, the also the abuse in the church that uh, and Francis was saying basically look to to resolve a problem you you've got to look at the various dimensions of the problem there will be psychological etc uh, etc et but you also have to look at the deeper spiritual problem that we are dealing with forces of evil that are again it's what is in the gospel that are against uh, Christ against God and that are producing division, etc. And his comment then relation to the Chilean bishops and the United States bishops, he said, I tried to get them, I tried to explain to them the importance of the spiritual dimension, not just to try and find kind of legal solutions, other administrative ways of doing it, managing the problem. You've got to go to the heart of the problem, which is spiritual. Right. And that was something that that struck me was, you know, I think a U.S. audience especially, we tend to think, well, you know, the spiritual part isn't important. What's important is the, the concrete actions. And, you know, to that extent, we'd say like, okay, the U.S. bishop's method of, you know, trying to put in place these rules and initiatives and systems, that's the right way. And maybe Francis's approach focusing more on the spiritual direction is the wrong way. But I think the end solution that we reach here is is that you need both, right? The church isn't a purely political or business organization. Like it has to be understood in the context of its spirituality. Yes, exactly. He, he's saying that the church isn't just a company and you don't resolve the problems within the church as you do in a company. You, you, there's a whole other dimension that you cannot abandon mm-hmm. it, it, without failing to resolve the problem. Right. This is something that came up also when we were talking about the election last week, when we were talking about how it's not just an election for a political party, like the Holy Spirit plays a role in this. Absolutely. And this is why the popes, in his letter to the American bishops and to the Chilean bishops, urges them to pray, give time, prayer, uh, penance, uh, fasting, and what he wants the bishops in the United States, in Chile, and other countries to do, is to engage in prayerful discernment. Not just reading the sociological, legal, uh, business-like ways of resolving problems. He believes they have to go deeper if they really wish to resolve and eradicate. And he's, he's saying in a nutshell, at the root of the abuse question, there is a real spiritual problem. Yeah, that's uh, that's just totally something that an American audience doesn't like to hear, right? Like they, we, I guess, I, I also am American. We don't talk about these spiritual matters as, as being part of this. We want to kind of focus mostly on the politics, on the, the status and stuff. But Francis kind of insists that we, we understand the reality of evil too. He says you have to look at all the dimensions of the question. And to ignore this is to ignore a very important aspect which risks uh, torpedoing the whole situation. Right. 
and he sees the wars in the world in the same context uh, that and he sees the situations that create poverty the response to the migrants he, he's looking at all these in, through the eyes of faith mm-hmm. and so if our coverage of of this or our analysis of these documents overlooks that then we're overlooking kind of the majority of it absolutely we have coverage of the entire Christus Vivit document from a variety of viewpoints at americamagazine.org. I'll link to a few of our analyses in the show notes. Thank you, Colleen, for today. It's been an interesting discussion. Look forward to chatting again next week. All right. And I'm happy I've got a copies of my new book. Oh, you have the final copies? The, the first two copies have arrived by FedEx. That's so exciting. Yes, yes. yes I'm, I'm delighted. It's a beautiful product. Mm-hmm. I finished it this weekend in PDF form. It was, it was great. It's different to have it in hard copy. Oh, totally. You know what they told me last night? What'd they tell you? They've had to go, go to a reprint. Why? Because the pre-sales orders have uh, apparently exhausted the first print. That's great news. Inside the Vatican is produced by America Media. Our executive producer is Eric Sundrup. Our news producer is Kevin Clark. Our audio engineer is Kieran Freeman. Inside the Vatican is mixed by Oliver Lazarus. Our studio manager is Leopold Stubner. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org or follow us on Twitter at americamag. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dully. See you next week.